Welcome to the Lepra Report Live. On today's broadcast, we look at obesity drugs versus changing behavior. The USDA rescues Alaska salmon. Wendy's tests underground delivery. The food service battle over sodium and a $29 hot dog in New York City. On the bullseye, an update on Smell-O-Vision. And I hope you'll check out my latest food trend series on Forbes.com. To get there, just log on to supermarketguru.com and go to the bottom right. Let's get started. So, Sally, you know, when we, you, you just wrote a great article for RDBA Weekly on the obesity drugs, um, what's going on, and, and we were seeing a lot of activity from food companies that are trying to hopefully balance this situation where people are not spending a thousand bucks a month on an obesity drug and changing behavior. What's going on here? Well, Phil, as we've talked about, you know, the, the popularity of these weight loss drugs, Ozempic and Wagovi specifically, these are semaglutides, um, which are typically used to, to treat type 2 diabetics. Um, Wagovi being one that in 2021 was approved for um, chronic weight loss. But now, you know, a lot of people have figured out that using this drug um, can help them drop pounds very quickly. And it's not surprising that people would want to want to get this prescription, especially when we have an obesity crisis that is affecting so many Americans right now. Um, it does cost an average of $820 a month, and typically your insurance will not cover this. So that is an issue for it being inaccessible to the average American. So the conversation um, has come up about, you know, are these obesity drugs really fixing long-term problems? Well, they can be potentially beneficial to people that are in urgent situations of obesity. Um, you know, is there, are we looking at the long-term solutions, which is creating better eating habits? Um, I recently read an article by a great writer, Hank Cardello, um, who writes for Forbes, and he he proposed this um, idea that um, companies like PepsiCo are stealthily changing their ingredients. He calls it stealth health, which I think is a great way of describing it. What's happening is, is that they are making changes. They're lowering sugar. They're lowering fat. They're lowering sodium. Some food companies are even, even fortifying their foods and adding some nutrients that we really need um, to help with those, those products that we love to buy but haven't been traditionally so good for us. Um, but, the, but the thing is that they're not actually publicizing this um, to consumers, which um, their hope is, is that as they gradually lower these ingredients that we don't want, that their consumers that are loyal to their brand and their products won't really notice the differences and um, they'll be eating a little bit better gradually and conditioning their palates um, in a positive way um, without fe feeling turned off by something labeled as low sugar or low sodium. Yeah, I think that, you know, the messaging is critical. And we're going to talk a little later about sodium. But, but again, we go back to Campbell's Soup example when they declared that they were lowering sodium um, in their soups, everybody was in an uproar and didn't like it, so they had to put the sodium back in. So I think that what Pepsi is doing and what other companies is doing, this stealth um, nutrition, if you would, I think is really smart. If we look at these weight loss drugs, 
Uh, it's projected that it's going to grow to $13 billion a year by the end of this decade, which is unbelievable. And also, another good reason not to be doing this is besides the points that you make out, uh, but you know, number one, when you stop taking these drugs, you put all the weight back on. And also, one of the big proponents of this is Elon Musk. So for no other reason, don't do it because Elon Musk wants you to do it, and he's doing it. So let's not do that. Um, the USDA is saving um, Alaska salmon. Um, what they've done is they've invested $70 million and bought Alaska sockeye for different food assistance programs um, around the country. And I think that this is terrific, not only for Alaska. I love Alaska seafood. I love the Alaska seafood uh, marketing board. Uh, but uh, what it also does for these participants in food assistance programs, it's giving them healthier food. Yes, I agree, Phil. This is a wonderful thing to do to support the fishermen uh, in Alaska or fisher fisherwomen as well. Um, but um, also, um, a 2021 study was uh, published on the National Library of Medicine, and it estimated that 90% of U.S. citizens do not meet the recommendation for seafood co consumption. Now, the reason we want to eat seafood if we're not vegan, is we want to get that omega-3 fatty acid. Our bodies cannot produce that without um, us getting it from food or some other form. And so um, we want to get those nutrients because they're really good for our heart and our brain. Absolutely. And, and I love this program. Uh, the only thing that I don't like about it is um, the federal process of buying and distributing food is cumbersome. It took eight months eight months for USDA to agree to make this purchase of Alaska salmon. And, you know, that's just way too long. But the good news is that it's going to food assistance program, better health, better nutrition. And as we talk about better health and nutrition, here's, here's technology that I just don't get. And Sally, maybe you can help me figure this one out. But Wendy's is piloting underground robots to deliver food to cars. Um, it happens in seconds. Uh, they're partnering with Pipe Dream. And what I don't really understand, and I don't think that this is that complicated or, or that much faster than a drive-through, you still have to pull up to Wendy's. They have these automated uh, things that look like in a bank teller that bring your food up to your car and you have to order on your phone to get delivered. Is that going to be that much faster? I don't get it. Well, I'm not sure, you know, how this is saving these companies money. I don't have numbers on that to compare that to um, to what it costs to have humans deliver food to these cars, like in the way that Sonic does, how we have someone bring the food out to our car, which I think is wonderful. But what we do know is um, there have been studies. In fact, there was one uh, published in 2022, just last year, by Big Red Rooster that said that 75% of customers still believe interaction with a human is a critical component of going to a restaurant. 
So I wonder um, if people will want to get their food that way. What if you what if you get it and, you know, there's a problem or you need something else? You know, do you have to pick up your phone and type that back into your app? And that that seems kind of cumbersome rather than just asking someone, can I have some ketchup, please? Yeah, I forgot the name of the restaurant, but there was a restaurant, I want to say about 10 years ago um, that was started in Southern California. I actually went to visit it. We did a story on it. It's somewhere in our archives um, that basically the restaurant was above ground. People parked underneath the restaurant and they ordered, um, not with their cell phones at that point, but with a little box and it was delivered down um, to the cars. They went bankrupt in a, probably about a year. Um, so I don't think that this is a solution and it's not necessary. It really isn't necessary. The drive-through, sure, there might be two cars in front of you, but it's very efficient. And what we're seeing with a lot of McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts is they're now, you know, building where there's two or three drive-throughs at at the same time so that you can get your order. Uh, but this to me sounds like, you know, technology looking for a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Sodium. Sodium, sodium, sodium. Uh, about 55% of our food budgets are spent on foods that are prepared and consumed away from home. And what we find in a survey of over 6,000 adults, while 52% of respondents prefer low-sodium, low-salt menu selections when dining out, only 6% of us or of them actually ask for them. Customers choose a restaurant most often for the deliciousness of the cuisine, according to the survey, and only 29% select a restaurant for its healthfulness. Um, this is a study that was just published in the journal Advances in Nutrition that really talks about the fact that uh, bottom line is food service operators are at a standstill. They know that consumers want lower sodium, uh, but they're struggling to create tasty foods that have lower sodium. We talked about the Campbell's example before. And, you know, what are we going to do to to get people to have less sodium? Yes, it is a challenge for these uh, creators of these foods and these chefs to come up with uh, ingredients that um, that taste as good as those high sodium ones. And it's also a matter of availability of those ingredients. But, you know, as we reported last week uh, here on the show, um, we heard from the USDA from one of their reports that sodium, that we are still getting too much sodium as Americans, and we're getting it mostly from eating out of our homes at restaurants. But I did see something really interesting in the news last week, Phil, about MSG, which has been considered for a long time something that we want to stay away from. However, that um, that myth, as this article um, is, is saying, um, is is being debunked by a lot of popular chefs right now. There are some chefs in New York um, that uh, create Asian dishes and they are using MSG. They are using this glutamate to bring that flavor. Um, if, if, if we don't remember, um, glutamate is, is the original umami flavor. And so that is one way that we can um, start bringing some of that, balancing some of that sodium flavor. Yeah, and um, there's a lot of controversy over MSG, but most of it has not been scientifically proven. 
So it's it's really one of those ingredients that we really need to relook at. Uh, talking about relooking, you know, a couple of weeks ago we reported about uh, Zabar's Eat Restaurant that was selling a ham and cheese sandwich for twenty nine dollars, and there was a whole controversy about it. New York Post did a story on it. Now what we're seeing is um, a new restaurant called Nisha in Midtown Manhattan um, serving a $29 hot dog. $29. And it comes on a potato bun with chili and condiments. Um, you know, I, I happen to still love Pink's hot dogs in Los Angeles and Gray's papaya hot dogs in New York, even Sabret on the street corners where you, you're buying a hot dog for a buck. I don't think that I would spend $29 for a hot dog. Yes, I agree, Phil. And I'm really glad that you brought up Pink's because um, I was looking at Pink's website today. And, you know, they are probably the most famous hot dog stand in the country located yeah. in ho the Hollywood, West Hollywood area. And so I was looking at their menu, just curious to see what their chili dog goes for. And I was so surprised to see that their chili dog is only five ninety five. And I was surprised because I just was out in L.A. and I and I and I noticed that a lot of the food prices had really, really gone up. But Pink's seems to somehow uh, keep their prices down. And that's a big difference from a twenty nine dollar hot dog. Absolutely. And and probably and you're probably going to cringe at this. But when I was growing up in New Jersey, we had a restaurant. Uh, I wouldn't even call it a restaurant, a hot dog stand called Rutt's Hut. And um, it was a hut. And what they basically did is they cooked the hot dogs by deep frying them. So yeah. you would get a hot dog. They deep fried it. They put it on a bun. It was actually very crispy, as you can imagine, by being deep fried. And sometimes you would bite into it and it would actually scorch your mouth because there was so much, you know, fat um, in that hot dog. Uh, and I think those days it was probably, again, about a buck. Uh, so this idea of a $29 hot dog, and I don't care whether you're in midtown Manhattan, you're in Paris, I don't care what city you're in, whether it's $29 for a ham and cheese sandwich or $29 for a hot dog or $29 for a burger, it just doesn't make sense. We just don't need to have that kind of debauchery, if you would, as it relates to simple, basic foods. And I think that all these companies are doing it to get PR, to have folks like us talking about it and, you know, putting them on the map. For me, it just doesn't work. Thanks, Sally. Appreciate it. Grocery store and mass channel visits were down year over year in quarter one, 2023. But it's important to view this in context. In a recent webinar for CMA and SEMA members, Placer AI explained how this shopping trip durations increased during the pandemic, and this trend still continues today. Check out this clip for more, and members can view the entire webinar in the resource library at Category Management Association. Take a look. So we're thinking about segments like grocery and superstores that were really at the, kind of the top of the mountain when we looked at retail even just a year ago in terms of where they were compared to where they had been pre-pandemic, where they had been the year prior. 
Yeah. And when, when we see declines in these spaces, there's this initial tendency to say, oh, that success has now dried up. And I think the reality is it's, it's not true, even though it looks true surface level. And I think a big part of that is what we've already discussed in these segments specifically, the visit duration has gone up really significantly. So yes, fewer visits, but more significant visits. I also think the strength is, is necessary to, to consider when we know that those were the segments that had been the most adaptable throughout other periods. These were, these were kind of essential categories, they're necessities, they're staples, they're things we absolutely require. And these are retailers that are really well positioned to maximize even fewer visits. So these, and wow. another piece is what we saw in terms of the difference between uh, group size, especially in Q1. So when we're thinking about April, this is less of a consideration, but when you think mm -hmm. about January, for example, we know that when there were rises in COVID in 2022, especially the early start of the year was kind of the peak of that Omicron run. Yeah, group yeah. size is increased. People are going to less things. So when they go out, they're going out together to the supermarket, right? We Another, mm -hmm. again, kind of pandemic trend that we saw in, in certain okay. periods. Yeah. So that all has an influence. And I think when we really think about it, groceries, superstores, and some other segments, they've actually shown not just tremendous resilience and success, but also the ability to ebb and flow alongside the consumer. So when the consumer yeah. wants to make its, their normal amount of visits and have them be a little bit shorter, great. When the consumer needs to shift that pattern, they're still really well positioned for that environment. And it speaks to, I think, the, the strength and the gains that these segments have made since the onset of the pandemic. On today's bullseye, if you were a kid in the 50s and 60s the way I was, you'll probably remember all the hype over what was being called the next generation of movie going. First, there was Aroma-Rama. Then came Smell-O-Vision, followed by Odorama and Aromascope. Aroma-Rama and Smell-O-Vision used what was for the time cutting-edge technology that would release particular aromas during the course of a movie that would add yet another layer of excitement to that experience. Neither really worked that well, as the machinery was noisy when the aroma was released, and it was spotty. In some cases, there were tubes that ran under the seats to distribute the aroma, and in other cases, there was a single machine placed at the back of the theater, and the aromas weren't evenly spread throughout the theater. So depending on where you sat, you might be overwhelmed with a fragrance, for example, warm bread coming out of the oven, or not even get a whiff. Then in 1981, director John Waters released his cult film, Polyester, and audience members were given scratch and sniff cards. Each card had numbers 1 through 10 on them, and when the number showed up on screen, you then scratched that number to release that aroma. There were others who tried the same technique as Waters used for some kids' TV shows, in the mid-1980s, MTV tried it with their movie Scent of Mystery. Then again in 2003 with the movie Rugrats Go Wild, and then in one installment of the Spy Kids movie. We just keep on trying to solve the problem and stimulate all five senses. Do we really need to do that? Well, at Disneyland, It's Tough to Be a Bug movie releases a stinky odor that coincides with a stink bug when it appears on screen. Really? Do I want to smell what a stink bug or a skunk smells like? 
Other Disney attractions release pie scents, orange blossom scents, pine forest scents, sea air fragrances, grassy scents, and cherry blossom scents. If you waited long enough online to take the Monsters Incorporated Mike and Scully to the Rescue ride, you're treated to a ginger-scented sushi house. I've never been in a sushi house that smelled like ginger. I know they give me a little ginger on the side, but the sushi house doesn't smell like ginger. Sorry, Disney. The list goes on and on for those who have tried to add aromas to enhance our movie-going experiences. And now let's fast forward to Aroma Player, a neck-worn dispenser that releases scents that match the mood of the video that you're playing. This Japanese tech startup, Aroma Join, says that the palm-sized device can switch scents instantly without any residual aroma. All you've got to do is download the Aroma Player app on Google Chrome. You start with a YouTube link, then you can add the aroma you wish on the video's timeline to set up what they say is the perfect smell, timing, and duration. The Aroma Shooter is available to both consumers and web developers and has hundreds of different scents available. The device has a holder for the different scent cartridges. It's similar to the ink cartridges for your computer printer. The Aroma Shooter first suctions ambient air, then the air passes through the scent particles released from the cartridge and then sends the scent directly to the user's nose. Maybe this iteration will finally take hold? Or are we doomed to spend the next 50 years with people still trying to get their noses involved in every digital experience? For me, especially in a movie theater, I still like the aroma of freshly buttered popcorn. I'll pass on the others. The Lemper Report is all about inspiring ideas, making our industry think, and challenging each other. Let's think about being the shopper and how we can bring our supermarkets and restaurants closer to meet their needs. I hope you'll come back and join us on next week's installment of The Lemper Report Live when we focus on the biggest and best insights and the things that really matter. Be sure to visit supermarketguru.com for the latest marketing analysis, issues, and trends, and I'll see you back here next Monday at 2.30 p.m. Eastern for a lot more.